Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and you guys, just say welcome to Marty Greer, who is here talking to us without even having had dinner yet. So I just want you guys to know that we are so incredibly grateful and appreciate your time, Marty. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Okay. So tonight we are talking about antisusception and some other kind of weird and wonderful things that happen to our dogs in their GI tract. Yes? Yes. Excellent. All right, guys. Are you planning your next litter of puppies? Or maybe you just finished your foundation bitch and you're ready to start health testing. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA tests on the market, offers specialized testing just for breeders. And while they're offering a few different tests, only the Embark for Breeders Dog DNA Kit was made to provide breed-relevant disease screening for your purebred dogs. It includes traits testing, such as coat color and body size, DLA diversity testing, breed ancestry, easy-to-download OFA submission reports, and the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program, including me, through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK to take $20 off a full-priced Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK. So as I said, intussusception is a really hard word to say. I still can't spell it. And, and in all of the 40 some odd years of Auntie Laura's Medical Miracles, it's one I haven't encountered. Talk to us about what this is and when we're going to see it, how we're going to know we're seeing it and what we do about it. Sure. So intussusception is when the intestinal tract invaginates or folds up on itself. So accordions on itself. So a piece of the intestine slips into another piece of the intestine all aligned. And unfortunately, what happens when that occurs is the blood flow is compromised to that part of the intestines. And very quickly, the dog gets into trouble with vomiting, diarrhea. They look really sick, really fast. So it doesn't look like your garden variety I ate grass and vomited or, you know, those kinds of things. It ranks up there in severity with parvovirus, with bloat. Is it bloat? It's not bloat, but it sounds like that type of emergent situation. It is. So there's a lot of different GI things, intestinal and stomach things that happen as intestinal accidents. So for instance, in people, we see appendicitis. Mm -hmm. Appendicitis is usually when some kind of 
food material or something gets caught in the cecum, which is a little outpouch between the large intestine and the small intestine. Well, dogs, we never see appendicitis. It just doesn't happen. Do they even have an appendix? Does the dog have an appendix? They have a tiny little pouch that isn't as large as ours. So Weird. no, not really. But there's a little remnant of something that would be similar to our appendix, but it just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But cows have cecums, horses have cecums, and they can have some pretty bad cecum accidents with them torsing. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of weird stuff that can happen with the intestines and the stomach. And when you think about it, it's kind of interesting that it doesn't happen more often because they're really not attached to a lot. You know, there's a blood flow through the mesentery, but the intestines and the stomach just sort of in the body cavity. For instance, when we do a spay, if you have a difficult time finding the uterus, you may pull intestines out. And so you kind of pull it out, look around, or if you're doing an exploratory, you pull out the intestines and you look around or you do a C-section and the intestines kind of slide out when the female is under anesthesia. And when you get ready to sew them up, you just like put them all back in and they know where to go. You don't have to neatly organize them. You just put them back in and they take care of themselves almost all of the time. Can you see my face right now? I can. Yes. Okay. Well, I talk about weird stuff because I spend most of my days with my hands inside some dog's body cavity. Valid. Valid. It's just normal dinner conversation at our house. <laughs> and that is the beautiful thing about dog people. Can we just have a tiny little squirrel moment? Like we can sit here and talk about this and collecting semen and doing all those things at dinner and like scarfing down the manicotti. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We've been thrown out of Perkins. We've been thrown out of other places. I've been thrown out of so many places. Yeah. Yeah. Cause our dinner conversation was oh inappropriate. Okay. Back to the intestines know where to go, which yeah. I'm really struggling to put my head around that, but keep going. They just do. But when there are intestinal accidents, there are appendicitis, there are cecal torsions. Those happen in large animals. There's bloat, which is when the stomach flips inside the abdominal cavity. We've talked about that. Yep. There's intussusception. There's gastrointestinal foreign bodies. So this is in the same realm as a bloat, as parvo, as foreign bodies, is these dogs look really sick. The other thing that can happen, and again, it's rare, but we do see it periodically, is the whole intestinal tract will flip around and twist on itself, and then it loses its blood flow. And again, those dogs look acutely, very painful, very sick, and then they die. Mm. Before you can even make a diagnosis, many Mm. of those dogs pass away. So it's pretty frustrating for veterinarians and owners alike because it feels like you should be able to intervene or do something, and we really can't. For instance, I had appendicitis as an adult, and you're really supposed to have that when you're like in your 20s. That's when most people have appendicitis. I had it when I was 50. I was in law school. I was supposed to have finals. And I got up in the morning, didn't feel too good. And as the day progressed, it got worse. And I went to the hospital like you should. And finally, they gave me some pain medication. And about eight o'clock at night, they were ready to take me to surgery because it's acute. You can't wait. And I had enough pain medication to me at that point. I said, you know what? I'm feeling better. I think I'm going to leave. And they take one hand and they shove me flat on the bed and they go, that probably means your appendix just ruptured. You need to lay down. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to stay. But you think about it. And even a hundred years ago, people died from appendicitis. As a matter of fact, cool side note, the Lewis and Clark expedition, the only member of the expedition who died on the expedition was in Sioux City, Iowa. 
and they believe he died of appendicitis. Yeah. And I didn't know that bit of trivia, but that's kind of how it goes is, you know, you'd rupture your appendix and you would get peritonitis and you would die. And to this day, people still die from it, but certainly not with the frequency as before, because it's easier to diagnose. Our anesthetic is better. Our procedures are better, but it's very acute. So it's one of those kind of intestinal accidents that happen. Most of the time, if intussusception happens, they're almost always young puppies. They're almost always associated with a heavy parasite load, which makes that that's what I was saying. So that's what I was trying to get to. That is what I had heard about this. The little bit I've heard is when you see it, it tends, tends to be not exclusively tends to be with a really bad worm infestation. Is it specific to a particular parasite or any parasite? Usually roundworms, but any parasite, anything that can make the gut hypermodal. So increase the motility or the activity of the gut to the point that it gets really angry and it just goes and sucks in. So it's Mm. sort of like if you take off your sock and you kind of pull it wrong side out for part of it, that's kind of how it looks is it has this double loop of intestines. Mm. So it's usually because of hypermotility, although it can happen also with linear foreign bodies. Now, a linear foreign body is something long and skinny that gets swallowed that shouldn't be swallowed. It's a non-food item. So it's pantyhose, it's string, Mm -hmm. it's yarn, it's balloon strings. Those long strands that come off of the rug, those throw rugs. The rope toys, when they pull bits off the rope toy, I've seen that. Yes. So those are the things that tend to cause foreign body intestinal into susception. I had one that the dog ate a few pieces of toy and the toy was like a nylabone kind of hard plastic toy. And so it had sharp edges on it. And the dog also swallowed dental floss at the same or near the same episode. So the dental floss caught on these two pieces of toy. It was a lab, right? Yeah. <laughs> and basically it was sawing back and forth through God. the intestine. So you can get some pretty awful things. Mm. When I was in my first year out of veterinary school, I had three cats that came in within 36 hours at the emergency clinic where I worked that had intestinal linear foreign bodies. So balloon strings, strings, pantyhose, you know, anything long and skinny that a cat or dog would swallow. And the problem with cats is because they have barbs on their tongue. Once they start Mm -hmm. to swallow something, they can't unswallow it. At least dogs. They don't throw up well. No. And some dogs can vomit up their foreign bodies, but a lot of foreign bodies end up causing pretty serious intestinal damage. So I had these three cats literally in 36 hours. I was just taking cats to surgery right and left. So if you have a puppy that goes in or a young dog that goes in with vomiting, it's absolutely imperative that two things happen during the physical exam. One is a very thorough palpation of the abdomen. So the veterinarian should put their hands on both sides of the abdomen and feel because some foreign bodies and some intussusceptions, you can actually diagnose with your hands. Mm. The second thing that needs to happen is the dog's tongue underneath the tongue needs to be looked at for any sign of a string. So that's dogs and cats that come in with vomiting. And let me tell you, cats are not fond of having their mouth open and have their tongue flipped up. Puppies aren't either, but cats are especially unfriendly about that. So you have to be- How many scars? Can you show us your scars? Oh yeah, for sure. And, you know, sometimes you can unloop it and then it'll pass through. But most of the time, those dogs and cats end up in surgery because Mm. of the risk of intussusception or Mm -hmm. sawing effect of the long string foreign body kind of thing that just cuts through the intestinal wall. So it can be pretty ugly. The third cat I took to surgery that night, we were in that 36 hour time period. It only seemed like one day, but it was actually a day and a half. 
had holes through the entire length of the intestine. And my boss came in and he said, didn't you put in drains? Didn't you do this? Didn't you do that? The cat would like, he was very painful and he was screaming after surgery because we didn't have great pain medication at that time. This was 41 years ago and cats are pretty darn tough. The darn cat pulled through and survived in spite of, because his entire intestine had holes in it. There was no taking out parts of it because there would not have been anything left. And so did you sew up the whole intestines? There were so many holes, you couldn't sew them all up. It was a train wreck. So we can see all kinds of things that go down and cause those kinds of damage. Mm -hmm. But intussusception is unique into itself because it may or may not be related to a foreign body. It may look like parvo because it's a young dog, comes in acute abdomen, vomiting, anemic, sick. The real interesting thing is either you can feel it or there's sort of a characteristic look at how intussusception looks on ultrasound. So if you have the suspicion of this, that's where your veterinarian would be most likely to have a good diagnostic tool is ultrasound. It's much more effective than x-ray in making Mm -hmm. the diagnosis, but feeling it is oftentimes what we can do. And I've seen this in puppies as young as six or seven weeks old. And those puppies are relatively easy to feel because they're not very big and there's not a lot of body fat. So oftentimes you can feel a thickening that you're like, "Uh oh, this is bad. We had one puppy that had two intussusceptions. He went to surgery twice. Is that normal? I mean, do they then become susceptible to it? Yeah, because their GI tract is so irritated and so angry that it just doesn't know what to do. So sometimes you actually have to surgically tack the intestines to one another so that they don't get to just randomly go wherever they want to in the abdomen. You actually have to like make a you know, those hairpin turns when you drive through the mountains, Mm -hmm. those are kind of what you have to do is you have to tack the intestines together in sections so that it doesn't re-intussuscept. To itself, rather than like tacking the stomach to the side of the body for a bloat. Right, right. It's a different kind of tacking. You tack Hmm. intestines to intestines. So it can happen sometimes. And the other intestinal accident that we haven't mentioned is rectal prolapse when a part of the intestine prolapses out through the rectum. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes again, those dogs go to surgery and end up with it tacked. That would be tacked to the abdominal wall. So Mm -hmm. there's different procedures depending on what the circumstances are, but this is a really, really, really good motivation to deworm your bitches while they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. If you didn't deworm your bitches for the five weeks that we recommend so that the puppies don't end up being born with worms. from, okay, I'm going to see if I can do it right. And you're going to correct me if I do it wrong. Daily from day 49 to two weeks of the puppies born. You're really close. 42 to day 14. Darn it. You're one week shorter than I am. So close. Okay. You got the right idea. Okay. But with Panicure, and that's only Panicure. Exactly. And if you haven't done that, then you start deworming the puppies when they're two weeks old. And you deworm every two weeks so that you don't end up with this situation. And you need to use something like Nemex, which will get roundworms and hookworms, then Bendazole, which will get Giardia. So you can get a lot of intestinal parasites. Like I said, it's frequently roundworms, but it doesn't have to be. It can be giardia. It can be hookworms. It can be roundworms. It can be whipworms. It can be coccidia. Anything that causes the GI tract to get hypermodal and the puppy to have diarrhea is going to put them at risk of intussusception. So the good news is it's not terribly common, but the bad news is when it happens, it's bad, like really bad. And it can look so much like parvo that sometimes it gets misunderstood as being parvo because you look at the puppy, it's really sick. It's the right age. It's got diarrhea. It's got blood in it. You're like, Oh, it's probably parvo. And some of those puppies probably just don't get diagnosed correctly because they just didn't put that on their list of differentials because it isn't common. Parvo is very common. 
very common. And of course, sure. there are times it's more common than others. So those are the things that we need to be aware of. Okay. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, you guys. If you are part of a national breed club in the U.S. or Canada, I need you to listen up. My partners at Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet, have just launched a super exciting national breed club referral program. I mean, I'm saying, you guys have heard me talk about Trupanion's breeder support program before, and this is what gives you access to a special coverage offer for your litters that waives waiting periods for your puppies when you send them home. Now you can partner with Trupanion directly to share this incredible free program with the breeders in your club. And the best part, your club earns sponsorship support in return for every member that joins the program. It's pretty much of a win-win, guys. If you're interested and want to learn more, head to my partner page at puredogtalk.com and click on the link at Trupanion. Since we have a minute still on our conversation, and since you said the magic word, Parva, <laughs> I feel like maybe this is a really good time to talk about Parvo inoculations and some of what's going around in Michigan. There's been a lot yes. of drama and worry and understandable panic about some mystery illness that... If I'm understanding what I read correctly, and you, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is just dogs who are not actually properly vaccinated for Parvo. And that's what it looks like it's going to be. But there was a combination of dogs that weren't vaccinated and the fact that some of these puppies were tested for Parvo and it didn't show up mm -hmm. positive for Parvo until it got to the diagnostic lab where they have a more sophisticated way to test. So that was the suspicion is that there may be a potentially a new strain of Parvo or some reason that those puppies weren't showing up positive. Now I've seen it happen before and I don't think it's all that terribly unusual. I think it's more that there were a lot of puppies that were involved and it seems that they were mostly young dogs, mostly under or unvaccinated. From a specific shelter, was it? I don't know that they've really revealed that information if it was a breeder or a shelter or where it was happening or a group of breeders, but it appears it was mostly young dogs that were either unvaccinated or hadn't completed the vaccination series. So the parvo test is kind of an interesting test. It's usually done as a rectal swab that you slide into the puppy's rectum and then it goes into this little well that you add some solution to and it shows up within 15 minutes of a positive or a negative. It's called a snap test. But a couple of things can happen. One is you can get a weak positive if the puppy was recently vaccinated for parvo. So that can throw people off and make them believe they have parvo if they may not. The other thing is if the puppy has gotten to a point during the disease process that they've shed so much of the intestinal lining that the virus is no longer in the intestines because it's all come out in the diarrhea, you can end up missing it because of that. So I don't think we understand this well enough. This has just happened in the last few weeks. Yeah, this is why we're having this conversation because it's really current and timely. And I'm sure people listening in the future will know the answers, but I figured for today's listeners, this is worth discussing. Right. And so there's just a lot of things that we don't really understand yet, but it's a good reason to say, make sure you're vaccinating your puppies, make sure you're keeping them safe, that you don't take them out into areas that are putting them at risk, like daycare and dog parks. 
until they're really adequately vaccinated. And because vaccines now are better than they were 10 years ago, five years ago, we are seeing stronger levels of maternal antibodies, meaning that it can take up to 18 weeks for the first vaccination to actually give the puppy their own immunity. So you can't just merrily go on your way and say, I'm going to give a vaccination at eight weeks and 12 weeks and call it done because those puppies may end up still vulnerable. So this is a really good reason to say, let's do titers on these young dogs yes. and sure that they're protected. So titers and nomographs, this is your opportunities. Go. <laughs> so a titer is a blood test that tells us what level of antibody that dog or the puppy has to a particular disease. In this case, parvo, we can titer for parvo and distemper. We cannot titer for lepto and some of the other diseases. A nomogram is the interpretation of the titer based on what antibodies the mother is going to pass off to the puppies. So you can do a nomograph during the bitch's pregnancy or during early lactation, not within two weeks of the time the puppies are born, either prior or after, because all of the antibodies in her circulation are being recruited to go to the mammary glands. So that titer is going to be automatically low. So it's basically a titer on a bitch that we know what her level is. We know how much the puppy should have ingested. And we know that the titer degrades 50% every two weeks. So Dr. Larson in the CAVID lab at the University of Wisconsin can take the bitch's blood sample and predict for you when the puppies need to have a customized vaccination if you don't want to just do 8, 12, 16, and 20 weeks. And for a lot of people, that's more than they want to vaccinate, or they're not comfortable with it, or they may have lost puppies if they waited until eight weeks. I mean, there's a lot of nuances to this. But the CAVID lab at CAVID at University of Wisconsin runs those nomograms and those titers. And that is our preferred lab to send samples to. Mm -hmm. And they do a tremendous job, but you have to realize that it takes four days to run the test. So you have to get the sample there and then you have to be patient, which, you know, none of us are patient anymore because Amazon has taught us that everything will happen immediately. Amazon Prime, I'm going to have it by Friday. Yeah. So pull the blood sample from your female two weeks before the puppies are due or two weeks after the puppies are born, correct? Now, frequently we'll do those titers at the time that we do the ultrasound and confirm a pregnancy, mm -hmm. because at that time in our veterinary clinic, we do a progesterone test on those bitches when they're mm -hmm. four weeks pregnant to make sure that their progesterone level looks like it's going to hold the pregnancy. So we're already drawing blood. We're already sending a sample to the lab. So it's a great chance. And you know, she's pregnant. So now you're motivated to do the titer and you have the results back in time to know how you need to vaccinate that individual litter of puppies. So it's really good timing for in our lab, in our hands, it's mm -hmm. good timing to do the nomogram at that time, because then you have the information and you're not standing there waiting for the email to come in at the last possible minute saying, how soon do I need to do this? So it works out really well in our hands. So it just depends. Okay. And I think it's really, really important what you just said. I've seen this also recommended from Gene Dodds and from some other places the new recommendation, and this is new. I mean, this is brand new in the last couple of years that the last vaccination of Parvo specifically be after 18 weeks. Right. And that I think is super critical to understand. Yep. And I've had people that, you know, they've taken their puppies to the national without any vaccinations and it just makes my head spin. Right. They're four months old. I'm like, come on, people. <laughs> yeah. You stopped at the dog park. You've got them around a bunch of other dogs. Like you went really? to the rest area. Oh my God. You went to all the trouble of having a litter of puppies. And now you're just going to willy nilly not vaccinate them. Makes me a little nuts. So, you know, if you think about it, 
all the medical advances that have happened in the world, yes, curing cancer, yes, surgery and anesthesia. I mean, anesthesia is a huge breakthrough for every kind of medicine, but so are vaccinations. And we need to realize the power of those vaccines. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what this group of puppies in Michigan has had happen to them. But right now it's in Michigan. That doesn't mean it's going to stay in Michigan because everybody travels everywhere. Mm -hmm. We've got Labor Day weekend coming up. I've actually heard rumor. I have not heard anything confirmed, but I have heard rumor that it's popped up at a couple dog shows. So I'm sure it has. I'm sure. So booster your puppies, mm -hmm. be smart about it, mm -hmm. you know, wash their feet, keep the bitches clean, mm -hmm. you know, just use your brains. Raccoon latrines are a risk for parvo as well. So people just need to be thoughtful and careful about what they're doing. So be smart about it. You know, parasite control doesn't sound like it's part of parvo, but it actually is. Because if you have unhealthy GI tract because you have parasites, then you're just going to make that puppy more vulnerable mm -hmm. to getting parvo yeah. as well. Because you lower the immune system. Exactly. And so, I mean, I am as much as anybody else, an advocate for responsible vaccine usage, you know, minimal vaccine protocols and all that. But let me tell you, parvo will definitely kill them. Giving them an extra oh, yeah. parvo shot may or may not parvo will yeah so parvo's a guarantee there you go that's where i am on this yep and there are going to be some new things coming but right now what we have is what we have yeah so yeah. we have to be really careful with what we're doing so yeah okay all right and as we know more as you know better you do better isn't that how that goes i think so yes i think so so we can make everybody a little smarter but Bottom line is, if you have a young dog or any age dog and they're vomiting and they look really sick, mm -hmm. don't mess around with it. Get in the car, go to the emergency clinic, go to your regular vet, get help because we can see any of these intestinal kind of accidents, bloat, intestinal torsion, intussusception, any of those things can be acutely fatal. And you're never going to forgive yourself if you just sort of sat on it and said, well, you know, I'm going to go to bed and see how he is in the morning. No, 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 no. You got puppies that are sick. You got dogs that are sick. Don't mess around with it. Now you're not going to likely have two interceptions in the same litter at the same time, but we can see a coronavirus. We can see a parvovirus. We can see parasites. And so frequently we'll see more than one puppy in a litter that's sick yeah, simultaneously right. or sequentially. One puppy will get sick and 12 hours later, it's the next and the next and the next. I'm like, yeah. So I'm just going to send some extra medication home with you because you're not done yet till you mm -hmm. get through puppy number 10. It's just mm -hmm. going to keep moving through the litter, mm -hmm. but it's possible, but pretty unlikely you would have two interceptions in the same litter at the same time. Although I will say I've had two sisters develop diabetes within a week of each other. Oh and I've had two sisters develop pyometras within a week of each other. So it can happen, but those kinds of things are rare. All right. Well, Marty, thank you so very much for your time as always. And we will talk again soon. All right. As always, it's great to talk to you. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. The Pure Dog Talk patrons support the work we do here by contributing to our crowdsourcing campaign. In return for their generosity that keeps the MP3s rolling, 
Patrons are invited to a private Facebook community. And that's where dog people, all of us together, can share, applaud, and commiserate. We have monthly after dark gatherings where we can, you know, raise a glass and provide a virtual get together for the entire group. I'm also so, 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 so excited about a very cool new feature that will be for patrons only making its debut in the next few weeks. So be on the lookout. There will be a chance available to you to sign up for the Pure Pep Talk. Pure Pep Talk is Pure Dog Talk's weekly mentoring message. Quick, upbeat, actionable tips and tools that you can use right now. Sign up today and get a ping tomorrow. Join the best community in purebred dogs. Stop by www.puredogtalk.com. Click the box right there at the top of the page. I might add, PSPS, finally, the first of what will be many curated ebook, audiobook options that is drawn from the Pure Dog Talk archives has, drumroll, hit the cloud. Auntie Laura's Beginner's Guide to Show Dogs is the perfect compilation for yourself, a friend, your puppy buyers, your kennel club, your 4-H club. Shop the book tab on the website and check it out. Always remember, you guys, your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.